The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists and is sponsored by Goldspot Discoveries. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. My name is Hallie Keevil, Project Geologist at Anglo-American, and I am your host for this episode. In last week's episode, you heard a range of stories about placer gold, from paleoplaster deposits to modern placer deposits, and how one venture is actually producing gold while restoring habitat for fish. If you haven't listened yet, it's a great episode. Today, we're going to zoom into my neck of the woods in British Columbia and talk about porphyry copper gold deposits. BC is well known for its porphyry deposits, and at the end of 2020, the Canadian Institute of Mining, Metallurgy, and Petroleum, otherwise known as CAM, put out a comprehensive volume on porphyry deposits of the Northwestern Cordillera, so BC, Yukon, and Alaska. The first section of the volume discusses the Cordillera in context, and the second section contains numerous deposit descriptions. It's a great volume, and I decided to track down some of the authors to pick their brains about the geologic and tectonic controls on some of these deposits in BC. And who better to introduce the topic than one of the local experts himself? So today we're here with Mitch Mihalinik, currently a member of the Deep Time Research Group at Oxford, UK, with a focus on geology and tectonics of the Canadian Cordillera that spans more than three decades. And he's going to discuss porphyry deposit formation and introduce us to the tectonic setting of the Northern Cordillera. Thank you for joining us today, Mitch. It's my pleasure to be here, Holly. And um, for listeners who don't know a lot about porphyry deposits, can you briefly describe how they're formed and, and why the Northern Cordillera is such a good place to look for these? Well, for people who haven't seen a, a porphyry deposit and might think of Yosemite Sam at the back of a little tunnel, clinking uh, away with a pick and shovel, grabbing chunks of copper, um, porphyry deposits today are, are really at a totally different scale. They are massive earth-moving processing ventures that are that the size is required because the grades that are mined for copper, gold, moly, silver, and byproducts are very low by comparison with what Yosemite Sam might have been mining. And we're talking about grades of, of 0.2 to 1% copper and 0.2 to 1 gram per ton gold or even less. And the, the way that these deposits form sort of these diffuse metal enrichments are in the, the roots of volcanic arcs. And volcanic arcs, as you and I are acutely aware, sitting on the Pacific Rim of Fire as we are, are products of subducting oceanic lithosphere. So where the ocean crust subducts beneath uh, a continent is, is where we form magmas that form uh, volcanoes within these arcs. And that process of subduction is really important. The 
subducting ocean plate is water enriched and a lot of metals prefer to be in the aqueous state and those metals rise up into the overlying mantle wedge and those fluids dump their load within the the mantle wedge they metasomatize it and where that that fluid fluxing, as we call it, is concentrated, we get melting of that mantle wedge. And this fluid exolving from the subducting ocean crust reduces the melting point of that overlying mantle. And melts from that mantle then can rise up and form a volcanic arc. The, the reason that some parts of the arc are enriched in metals is because the volume of mantle wedge that is melted to produce those melts contain a high proportion of this metasomatized material. Wow, quite a complex process to ultimately end up with these massive deposits. But what prevents all this metal-rich material from just exploding in a volcano? Well, as it turns out, when volcanoes are degassing, the copper does like to stay in that volatile state. So if we're talking copper in a volcano that is erupting subaerially, that copper will leave the system. So what we like to concentrate on when we're doing mineral exploration is an environment where that magmatic system hasn't broached the surface. And so obviously in terms of what you were just talking about in the subduction environment, BC, Yukon, the Northern Cordillera is a great place for porphyries to form. But in terms of the Northern Cordillera, there's been quite a complex tectonic history from the Paleozoic to the present day. So can you briefly go over some of the key events and how they may relate to porphyry mineralization? Oh, sure. That would fill an entire course. (laughs) But in general, the margin of Western North America formed some 750 to 550 million years ago. It took a long time for the conjugate part of what was called the Rodinian supercontinent to to drift apart. But since that time, there have been a series of uh, accretionary events. And the the most important ones happened around early to mid-Jurassic age and early to mid-Cretaceous age. And, you know, we have porphyry deposits that that span an age spectrum, or or porphyry showings at least, and that ranges from 5 million years to Paleozoic in age. But the real prolific belts within the Cordillera are within a a hairpin-shaped twinned belt of arc terrains that we call Stichenia and Quinellia. And those porphyries formed 5 million years or 4 million years either side of about 205 million years ago. So these two belts are forming this hairpin. They are mantled on their outside by rocks that, that are mainly sediments, but they're derived from North America or appear to be. And then at the core of that hairpin of arcs are what look like accretionary complex rocks. And these are called the Cache Creek terrain. And they host within them blocks of uh, carbonate shelves. They have bits of oceanic crust 
But what came to light in the, the mid-90s is that the largest component is a package of late Permian, mm-hmm. early Triassic arc rocks. These are called the Cucho Arc, and these rocks were the focus of work by, by John Thompson and his PhD student Fiona Child, and they were looking to date volcanogenic massive sulfides throughout the, the province of British Columbia, and in a pre- particular sort of focused in on this package of rocks within the Cache Creek. And the late Permian to, to early Triassic age is a time when the adjacent arc terrains shut down. So there seems to be a, a kinematic linkage there. And the other thing that we see within those adjacent terrains, especially the inner part, the one part close to North America, the Cornelian part, which seems to be joined at its northern end with the Stikinian part, is this widespread late Triassic conglomerate event. This is a sign of a very widespread disruption throughout these arc terrains, which extend some 4,000 kilometers or so. And when we discovered that this Cucho arc was an appropriate age to be a collider and with with the Quinell and Stikine arc and, and explain this this widespread arc instability, that, that was a real eureka moment. And it's that collision that we think sparked off this this very prolific pulse of porphyry mineralization. So that's why the Triassic Jurassic Porphyries are typically the most well endowed in. Well, we, we think so. I mean, and I haven't explained mechanically how that works, but, but that collision was the key event, we think. Okay, interesting. And what age are the youngest porphyry deposits in the Cordillera that we know of? Those occur on Vancouver Island. This is the Klashkis belt. And that this comes, uh, the, the dating comes in part from work that Graham Nixon at the British Columbia Geological Survey and Rich Friedman at UBC have been doing. And those rocks look to be about 5 million years old. And they're related to the northernmost relict of the old Farallon plates. This is the, the Juan de Fuca. And there's a tear fault at the northern end. And that tear fault seems to be generating melts that are pregnant with copper and, and gold. And I'm not I'm not that familiar with that belt, so I don't know whether there's a, there's a lot of molybdenum as well with within those rocks, but but it's sort of a, a very new belt um, uh, exploration play and I think hopefully we'll we'll be hearing more about it. So basically any time in the history of the Northern Cordillera is, is potentially perspective for porphyry mineralization, but there has to be some sort of unique special tectonic event that occurs in order for the really good ones to form. Yeah, well, it seems like what makes the most uh, prospective belts for porphyry formation is when we have a disruption of the downgoing plate. When we break that subducting plate, we generate melts that are highly prospective for the formation of porphyry deposits. And the, the reason for that is that uh, when you break the downgoing slab, you generate a thermal pulse. If you can imagine that having it like the Cucho arc, 
embedded in oceanic crust that is subducting. When that Crucho arc collides with the adjacent arc terrain, the, the plate that it's riding on would continue to, to subduct. So what would happen is that subducting ocean lithosphere would rupture would, and hot the hot subslab asthenosphere would well up into that, that rupture. Now, typically, subducted cold ocean lithosphere refrigerates the mantle wedge. But in this case, when you break it and the hot subslab asthenosphere wells up into that break, you bake the overlying mantle wedge. Typically, that fluxing of the mantle wedge is focused within a relatively narrow zone above which you form volcanoes. But when you rupture that plate and that thermal pulse, first of all, what it can do is it can cause wholesale melting of the mantle. And we can see that happening in this late Triassic magmatic belt. There are formation of rocks called picrites. These are very unusual uh, ultramafic volcanic rocks, and they have been emplaced on the surface of the earth. And to get rocks from the, the mantle right up to the surface of the earth erupting requires a very unique environment, both for their formation and for their emplacements. And then the, the most important event is when that thermal pulse subsides and you envelop much more of the mantle wedge. So what happens then is that areas that were only moderately fluxed on either side of the major flux channel are involved in this elevated thermal regime and they melt because they're hydrated. And those melts are naturally elevated in the, the sorts of metals that we're looking at, looking for. And that's why these slab breaks or slab tears are important. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's super interesting. And I love how you just explained about 10 complex research papers in all of a couple minutes. So I, I live in BC and I'm learning a lot from you. So I'm sure the listeners are going to be really intrigued by all of this as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Mitch, and for the fantastic introduction to BC porphyries and the tectonic setting of the Northern Cordillera. You're very welcome. Anytime. If you want the whole explanation, we'll have to schedule several meetings. So since Mitch has kindly given us a bit of a background on BC's accretionary history and the formation of porphyry deposits in British Columbia, let's jump into the Cornell terrain and speak to someone who has worked on deposits in southern Cornelia. Joanna Lipsky is a consulting geologist specializing in spectral geology and alteration mapping. She received a BSc in geological engineering from Michigan Technological University in 1998 and an MSc in geology from Oregon State University in 2002. She has 20 years in the industry, with experience that spans from an early career mine geologist to greenfield and brownfield exploration. Prior to her current role, Joanna spent 11 years with Newgold, where she most recently managed the exploration program at New Afton from 2013 to 2016. Joanna worked as an exploration geologist on various assignments throughout Mongolia, South America, Australia, Canada, Alaska, and Nevada. She currently resides in Portland, Oregon, with her husband, Joel, also a geologist, and daughter, Goldie, a budding prospector of all things sticks and stones. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joanna. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is so cool. I've never been on a podcast before. There's a first time for everything. I'd never been involved in podcasts either at all or been on one until sort of uh, just pre-pandemic was when we started recording season one. So it was released when everyone's lives and routines had changed drastically and virtual platforms right. were how we all started to receive our information. So I'm curious so if season two will be as popular considering people are back in their daily lives a little bit more now. 
So I, I guess we wanted to start off this part of the podcast with talking about the Quinell terrain. And you spent a lot of time at New Afton. So why don't we start there and zoom right into the deposit? And can you maybe tell the listeners who don't know about New Afton a little bit about it? Like its age, its tectonic setting, and is it a calc-alcalic porphyry or is it an alcalic porphyry? Sure. So New Afton is located about 10 kilometers west of Kamloops in south central BC, for those who aren't familiar it's a, it's a gold copper porphyry. It contains about 2 million ounces of gold and 2 billion pounds of copper globally. It's late Triassic, 204.5 million years. And the, the causative intrusion is a monzonite stock that's part of the iron mask batholith. So the, the deposit is alkalic and silica saturated, but just barely. It, it has very little in the way of quartz veins. And the, the ore body is, is very narrow, it's near vertical, and it's dominated by calcopyrite, magnetite, and minor bornite. And in terms of tectonic setting, New Afton is located in the Quinell Island Arc terrain, like you mentioned. And it's part of a belt of very prolific alkalic porphyry copper gold deposits, such as Ajax, Copper Mountain, and Mount Polly. Thank you. I was just thinking about my my experience in the Kamloops area is very minimal, but if you were driving down the road and, and looking at Highland Valley, say, Highland Valley, I believe, formed between 209 and 207 million years ago. Is that correct? Yep. And it's calcalcalic, right? So if you were an amateur geologist and driving down the road and you were, you know, just like, I guess it's about 30 kilometers as the crow flies from mm-hmm. New Afton to Highland Valley... How do you explain why there's two deposits that are different magmatic affinities, different ages, so close together spatially in the present day? Such a great question. The short answer is geodynamic setting. So I'm not an expert in this by any means, but but I'll do my best to break it down the way I understand it. So Highland Valley and New Afton are both pre-accretionary deposits. Highland Valley is situated at the margin of the Catch Creek terrain, which sits on the western edge of Quinellia and is interpreted to represent the forearc to the Quinell terrain, which represents the back arc of the accretionary complex. And the back arc is where New Afton is situated. So like you said, the two deposits are very close geographically, but they occur in different terrains. And Highland Valley in Gibraltar, you should mention that one as well, they're amongst the earliest of the known porphyries in this belt to form. And they form by subduction in the island arc. So they're both calcalcalic porphyry deposits that were in place at very deep paleo depths, mainly within their causative batholith scale plutons. Now, New Afton formed shortly after Highland Valley by several million years, and it, it formed during a, a very economically significant episode of alkalic porphyry mineralization that occurred roughly between 205 to 200 million years ago. And the porphyry deposits, the alkalic ones, like New Afton, Copper Mountain, and Mount Polly, formed in Quinellia during this episode, as well as the high potassium calcalcalic red crisp deposit and the alkalic galore creek deposit in Stikinia. And that this episode coincides with early initial terrain accretion or collision, if you will, of the island arc with the continent as the arc migrated eastward. So in terms of structural controls on the New Afton deposit, are the main structures that control a deposit arc parallel or arc transverse? And what does that have to do with the the geodynamic setting? And is it important? Does this actually matter? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll start by saying that New Afton was emplaced in a dilational jog, 
along the Cherry Creek Fault, which is, it's not really arc parallel. I would say it's more arc oblique. It's a major northwest trending fault. But a very important structural control on the deposit is a picrate body that bounds the ore body to the south, which is also parallel to and sheared up by the same fault. So the sheared picrite effectively provided a favorable rheology contrast with the brittle nickel of volcanic rocks that controlled the emplacement of the stock and concentrated metals. However, the ore body itself and best grades within it are controlled by a fault that's subparallel to the dilational jog at an arc transverse orientation. So this arc transverse orientation also controls the distribution of other gold copper occurrences in the district. So to answer your question, I think the porphyry and the fluids were concentrated at the intersection of the two, but it's really the arc transverse orientation that has more influence on grade within the deposit, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. I guess some structural geology isn't typically the first thing people think of when they think of porphyry exploration, but perhaps it should be one of the first things people think of, especially in, in BC. I know at least in the Stikin terrain, the arc transverse structures are typically the most important and the arc Very parallel structures so. are less so. Yeah. How was New Afton discovered? And and if you were looking for the same deposit today, knowing what you know about it now, what techniques do you think you would use to help you in the discovery process? Well, well, first I'll start with the discovery story. It's kind of interesting. New Afton is located in a larger district of copper iron mines and occurrences within the iron mask batholith. Since the turn of the century, copper, gold, and iron had have been mined in that greater district. But to the best of my knowledge, the original discovery was a small IP anomaly, and the discovery hole was drilled in 1970 by a company called Afton Mines. And there they, they intercepted significant amounts of native copper where the historic Afton open pit is located now. So Tech eventually purchased Afton Mines and developed and operated it until the late 80s. The original Afton open pit was all supergene copper, but the current new Afton deeper sulfide portion of the deposit wasn't really discovered until about 30 years later. So in, in the late 90s, Tech dropped the property and a couple of geologists, knowing that sulfide ore existed beneath the pit, staked mineral claims over the Afton pit. And they subsequently optioned the claims to DRC Resources, which is now New Gold, its current producer. And um, New Gold spent a considerable amount of time exploring the down plunge extent to mineralization. They had to construct an exploration decline for underground exploration drilling. I believe that was in 2004. And then over the following three or four years, put out a resource and completed a feasibility study for a block cave mine, which eventually became operational in 2012 as Canada's first block cave. And it's been in production for nine years now. So I guess in short, I, I would describe the new Afton story as more of a rediscovery rather than a discovery that resulted from the recognition of a deeper sulfide portion of the supergene ore body. So your second question, if you know, if I were to, to go and look for the same deposit today, what techniques would I use to help in the, the process? Obviously, it's easy for me to say, hindsight's 2020. But first of all, the deposit, in fact, many of these things are quite narrow and have small footprints. So how do we go about exploring in the third dimension? Now we know that the deep sulfide portion of New Afton is only 100 meters wide in places. Plus it's near vertical and it plunges to the southwest upwards of a kilometer and a half. It's, it's essentially a mile, maybe even more. I haven't been there in a while. 
So anyway, the, the deposit's full of magnetite and it has up to 10% chalcopyrite with a roughly a 200 meter wide pyritic halo. So IP is very effective there, especially when combined with magnetotellurics. And when you look at airborne surveys like, like magnetics, New Afton is associated with a magnetic low due to this magnetite destruction in the sericite halo. And the maglo is very discreet and narrow, and it's situ situated along the flanks of a strong magnetic high. As an explorationist, I, I would suggest that a large aeromag high that cannot be explained by the surface geology or areas that have high magnetic susceptibility and high density contrast should be considered attractive geophysical targets in this part of the world. And... Um, you know, because of where it is geographically, the, the level of exposure and lack of surficial cover is quite permissible to map surface geology and sample because you don't have the till cover there. And I, I think in hindsight, soil sampling would have been very effective back in the day. But boots on the ground geology with systematic detailed geologic mapping, I think are invaluable. We know a lot more today than we did 30 years ago about deposit footprints and geochemical dispersion patterns. I, I think New Afton would be a great candidate for mapping the outer green rock halo since it extends beyond a kilometer from the deposit. And also knowing what we know now from all the drilling that's been done, we see an increasing amount of mineralized intrusive clasts in the fragmental varieties of the coeval volcanic pile as you get closer to the deposit. So I think Using this as an example, I think careful field observations and a very systematic approach to mapping minerals and clasts could go a long way. Infrared spectroscopy, you know, that could be applied to measure compositional changes in chlorites and white micas towards mineralized centers. And on a more regional scale, I think I'd, I'd search public data for occurrences of ultramafic flows or intrusions that imply primitive mantle signatures or, or find geochemical evidence for them. Because a lot of these deposits in, in Quinellia and Stachinia are spatially associated with picrate. And I, I could keep going on and on. Of course, it's all hindsight and easier said than done when these things are so deep and so narrow and ha they have, unfortunately, have small footprints. Yeah, especially alkalic deposits have smaller footprints than calcalcalic deposits typically. That's a really interesting discovery story, or I guess rediscovery story, as you refer to it. A couple questions came up. One, I, I always thought that alkalic deposits didn't necessarily have a big IP anomaly due to the lack of pyrite. Mm. But you said IP was the main thing and surface mapping back in the day. So I guess my next question is, what else is unique about New Afton that's different from a more typical alkalic porphyry that you'd see elsewhere in, say, British Columbia? Yeah, well, there are well many similarities and many differences. But I would say the most unique feature that New Afton has is a, is a pretty sizable supergene ore body. So again, that portion was previously mined in the open pit by tech. But deep supergene weathering profiles are just not common in BC because of glaciers. So you know, there are several exceptions, of course. I think that the casino deposit in the Yukon has a supergene blanket. But at Afton, it's quite substantial. And, and there you can observe native copper down to 600 meters below the surface along structures. And the reason for this is a matter of being in the right place at the right time. The supergene part of Afton sits immediately beneath a thick package of sediments that form by basin filling during the Eocene and presumably protected the deposit from glacial erosion. 
And one other unique feature worth mentioning, I think, is the, the pyritic halo, like you just mentioned. It's a bit more extensive there, I would say, than many other alkalic deposits, as broad sericite halos are just not common to these systems. Or if they are, they're pretty narrow. But it also has a kaolinite-bearing hydrolytic alteration overprint that's associated with high sulfidation state minerals like tenantite and anargite. Now, this is, this is not common. A few exceptions to this, of course, the calca, or I should say high potassium calcocalic red crisp deposit in Stichemia does have some similar features. I guess the next question that sort of came up was about spectral studies, and I, I need to bug you about spectral geology, knowing your background. I also know that CoreScan did a lot of work at New Afton, so I'm curious what was found there and how spectral studies can help with near mine exploration and how they may be helped at New Afton. Yeah, now you're speaking my language, and I could easily fill up the entire episode with this. But um, in my opinion, I think it added a lot of value there, not only with near mine exploration, but really helping the geologists do their jobs. It improved the consistency in logging certain alteration minerals between geologists, and, and it helped us figure out and map our mineral assemblages. And you know, more than that, it really enhanced our ability to identify unknown minerals beyond the hand lens. For example, it helped us recognize that highly crystalline kaolinite I just discussed in that late alteration overprint. And it also identified prenite, which is in the outer green rock halo within 50 meters of the deposit. And for those not familiar with it, prenite's a, it's a hydrous calcium aluminum silicate, and it's a common alteration phase in alkalic porphyry deposit. And it can be used to vector in the outer green rock environment. But I personally find it rather difficult to identify properly via hand lens. So, you know, something like a handheld ASD or a halo or a core scan could definitely help with that. They both helped us also identify unseeable compositional shifts, like I mentioned earlier, shifts in chlorites and white micas towards the deposit center. In, in particular, the chlorite composition would abruptly shift towards magnesium rich within meters of the ore zone and white micas would experience a gradual shift towards iron magnesium rich or fengitic towards ore mineralization. So in the near mine environment for exploration, those shifts can really be valuable as a vectoring tool. Thanks. I guess anything that can improve consistency in logging is worth the money. Oh yeah. <laughs> and spectral work like CoreScan just goes above and beyond. And what about airborne hyperspectral. If you were, if you were, say, mapping the Kamloops Logan Lake area, and if you flew a really high resolution hyperspectral study over the whole area, for example, do you think you'd be able to pick apart the differences between these systems, like calcalcalic versus alkalic or in the area, or not necessarily? You need other tools, or you need to sort of zoom in more? Mm, I, I wish I could say there's a silver bullet, <laughs> but <laughs> unfortunately, there's not. But, I, you know, I do think the, you know, the most notable differences we'd see between calcalcalic and alkalic porphyry systems is the compositional shift in white micas that I talked about and in the size of the white mica overprint. So in typical calcalcalic systems, these halos are quite large and in alkalic systems, they're quite narrow. And compositionally in a calcalcalic system or anything that's infalsic to intermediate host rocks in an acid environment, we might see a shift towards more aluminum-rich white micas as opposed to a shift towards fengitic composition like we would see in an alkalic porphyry. There are always exceptions to that, of course, where we might observe the opposite, and it also depends on your original host rock composition. But, um, 
you know, as much as I will advocate for handheld spectroscopy or hyperspectral studies, I, I don't think it can or it should be used as a standalone tool. But like I said, it can certainly help us see the unseeable. So you don't think boots on the ground geology is going to be replaced just yet? I don't think so. Oh. And you still need a geologist to make, you know, meaningful interpretations of the data. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we zoom out a bit more to the segment scale? And um, what do you think are the most important controls on porphyry deposits in BC in general? Is it structure? Is it the tectonic setting? Is it age? Is it source of the intrusion? Is it all of the above? Mm. Is there one sort of, you know, area you would never look because it doesn't have any of the right ingredients? Yeah, that's a tough one. I'd say all of the above. Tectonic setting, like we talked about earlier, you know, it can influence the metal signature and compositional affinity, in particular, the geodynamic configuration of the accretionary margin in an island arc, as well as the depth of emplacement. So are, are we in a deep plutonic environment versus a shallow volcanic environment? Myron Ossetenko and Brock Rydell and Jim Lang break this down very comprehensively in their paper in the new CIM porphyry volume. But I, I should also say that Structural intersections and lithospheric architecture control emplacement and influence deposit size. And yes, I, I believe age is also important, but I think geodynamic setting kind of factors into that. So in general, the most well-endowed porphyry deposits in BC are the alkalic ones that were in place during the late Triassic to early Jurassic. So in the Quinal and Stikine terrains, these form just prior to terrain accretion onto the ancient continental margin. In Quinalia, the, the highest grade porphyry deposits are the gold copper alkalic varieties that all formed within the 205 to 200 million year age bracket. So yes, age does matter. <laughs> but let's let's look at source of intrusion. Plutonic Calc-alkalic deposits like Highland Valley and Gibraltar form by subduction, like we discussed earlier, in an island arc setting prior to accretion. These are also late Triassic. These porphyries were placed in batholith size intrusions at very deep paleo depths, like we're talking three to five kilometers. But these deposits are dominantly low-grade copper moly and on, on the order of, I'd say, 0.4% average copper grade. But these two deposits in particular are, are large tonnage, and they exceed 1 billion tons. And then we have the post-accretionary calc-alkalic deposits. In BC, the, the post-accretionary calc-alkalic magmas were emplaced in a continental arc versus an island arc. And they typically produce smaller stock size intrusions at shallow paleo depths. And these these ones range in age from Cretaceous to Eocene Oligocene. They typically have copper, gold, moly, plus minus some silver in their metal signature. So I'm, I'm not going to rattle all of them off, but Huckleberry, Pebble, and Casino are good examples of these. And, and just like Highland Valley and Gibraltar, the median copper grade in these things is similar to the pre-accretionary deposits, but they're, they're more variable in terms of molly, and many have gold. But Casino and Pebble, for example, are, are they're both exceptions exceeding a billion tons. They're giants. And Pebble is a great example where local structure factors into the size of the deposit. It's, it's obviously a giant, like I said, and, and it occurs at postulated major translithospheric fault intersection. So yeah, age matters, but Anomalous geodynamics with an island arc or continental arc settings factor into magmatic affinity, size, and grade. And giants like pebble can also occur in favorable structural settings regardless of affinity. 
Yeah, I'm really curious about um, deposits like Pebble and if they really are lone wolf deposits or if, if there you know, are, are deposits like that close by that just haven't been discovered yet. That's a, that's a topic for another time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have kind of a, a million dollar question. My last question is, what is your favorite area of BC? What, what do you think is the most prospective area? If you were going to go back to BC and explore, would you explore undercover, for example, under Chilcotin Basalt? Or would you go somewhere else in the Quinell terrain that's underexplored or just maybe has exploration challenges so no one's been there, but would be really interesting geologically if we could only figure it out? Hmm. Well, I think many of your listeners would probably agree that the Golden Triangle is the place to be in you know, if you haven't heard of it, the secret's out now. <laughs> but, um, you know, there, much of it's under tilt cover. So arguably, it's very underexplored. I, I personally also find the Tutagon really interesting. It's one of the few places in BC that has preserved lithocaps. And, you know, we know that late Triassic, early Jurassic porphyry deposits are lurking around like Kames, but a large part of that district is covered by later Jurassic Hazelton group rocks. So I, I think there's a lot of blue sky there in terms of porphyry prospectivity. I've seen a lot of maps um, from juniors where they draw the the golden triangle and the Tutagon and call it the golden horseshoe. <laughs> That's right. Or they draw the golden triangle as like a square or a hexagon or something to incorporate the various projects that might be sort of outside the, the typical golden triangle. Right. So I think others would agree with you that the golden triangle is the the place to be, or at least that's what investors believe in yep. as well. Location, um, location, location. Absolutely. Well, thank you for giving us your insight and your tips. It was great having you on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time and appreciate you being on this episode. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. So now let's head from the Quinell terrain up to the Northern Stikine terrain and talk with someone who's familiar with some of the deposits up there. We're here today with Gail Febo, who is going to talk to us about BC porphyries and some of her work in Northern Stikinia. Gail received her BSc degree from UBC in 2007 and her master's in structural geology in 2016 from the MDRU, also at UBC. She has 17 plus years of work in mineral exploration that couples geologic mapping and petrographic study of structurally controlled and deformed porphyry epithermal systems in BC, including Bruce Jack, KSM, and Galore Creek. She is currently vice president of exploration for Kingfisher Metals Corp, an early stage explorer of high-grade copper and gold systems in British Columbia. She was also an invited speaker at this year's SEG 100 conference in Whistler. So if you attended the conference and didn't see her talk, be sure to go back to the online platform and check out the ore deposit structure pattern section from September 16th. Her talk was titled Coincident Fold, Fault, and Vein Geometric Patterns at Galore Creek and KSM Copper Gold Porphyry Districts, Reflections of Cryptic Basin Architecture and Transcrustal Magma Conduit. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gail. Thanks, Sally. And thank you also for your contribution to the CIM volume where you discussed the Mitchell deposit in great detail. I'm yeah, always... it was really fun to get to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm always really impressed by anyone who does detailed structural work, especially at the deposit scale. Yeah, I think it's been a little slower to come to the porphyry world. I think everyone's kind of quick to appreciate it in a lot of systems, but it doesn't seem to matter as much in porphyry. So I think there's a lot of room for adding value there right now, in particular Absolutely. in stachynia especially because people don't really fully understand the underlying crustal architecture in a lot of northern Stikinia. Totally. So I guess since you've worked recently in the KSM district, would you mind describing the district to us in terms of where it sits tectonically, its age, and whether the KSM deposits are calc-alcalic or alcalic porphyries? Sure. So 
The KSM project, as it sits now, includes Snowfield, and it's uh, basically five separate porphyry deposits, including a supergiant of the Mitchell, as well as three that are classified as giants, so a really big district. Mitchell and Snowfield are the thrust offset pieces of each other, and so that would have been a really big system. KSM right now contains 76 million ounces of measured and indicated gold and another 66 million of inferred. And to put that in perspective, you know, Pebble has been in the first place for, you know, most contained gold and that has 70 million ounces of gold. KSM has now surpassed that, so it would make it the largest contained gold globally right now. So very significant system and really interesting one to research. Wow, yeah. So the basically the system, there are two plutonic rocks there, two different types. And one's, you know, this really maroon colored, uh, the premier intrusions, and those are alkaline. Initially, that was speculated to be the cause of the porphyries in the district. And because of that, for a long time, KSM was classified as alkalic. And with a lot of extra drilling of the root zones and a lot more you know, mapping and the work we did, we figured out it's actually the sulfurets intrusions, which are porphyries and their calcalkaline that are causing these systems. And so this this would then classify it as calcalcalc. And that's what I would consider uh, the district. And it fits other things you see there too, really high volume quartz veins, like 12 kilometer long QSP alteration and significant molybdenum. So that's kind of just the, the gist of it anyway. That's really interesting. Yeah, but I think something that hasn't really been answered is what is the significance of these alkaline melts at KSM? They do make a sub-economic or so far sub-economic uh, zones, but what we don't know is how they interplayed with the other intrusions. Like, for example, you know, Michelle Campbell, she did her PhD at KSM and she found a lot older age for the Kerr deposit. But the KSM tectonically is in is in northern Stikinia and what is the age of the mineralized calcalkaline? intrusions? Well, the molybdenum dates uh, have a bit of a span. Most of them are in the early 190s, uh, like 191, 190. Um, and I'd have to double check, but I think Michelle's new Molly age is more than 200. Okay. And then you have Bruce Jack, which is as young as I think 182. So a really significant span, actually. Yeah, really. Like yeah. Years. And can you tell us a bit about how the KSM district was initially discovered? Mostly through just detrital gold, like the prospectors kind of caught on to it on the Eunuch River and then kind of followed up Sulphurettes Creek and Mitchell Creek, which was really coming from Bruce Jack. And then after that, you know, helicopter access kind of opened everything up. And I mean, how was it discovered? It's a 12 kilometer long Gossen. So I imagine it just they flew over it. And that was kind of the beginning of all that. And then, you know, the drill campaigns like drill discovery would have been in the mid to kind of late 80s. That was Kerr and Snowfield. And then early 90s, uh, Sulphurettes was was drilled. Uh, Mitchell Deposit was drilled in 2006, followed by Iron Cap in 2010. And then you had kind of the deeper discoveries, if you want to call them that, by Seabridge of, you know, uh, at Kerr and Iron Cap. I'd love to get up there and check out some of those deposits. They sound really interesting. And the photos I've seen from the area, KSM and Bruce Jack look just beautiful. I've never gone further north than Southern Quinellia. <laughs> yeah, it's the most amazing place to work. I think there are probably very few places in the world where you have more than a kilometer vertical extent for a lot of these systems too. So I think it would be so neat to research that vertical profile. Mitchell and Snowfield together would represent two kilometers almost of vertical because you get 
their thrust offset and they're both drilled off, right? So pretty unique. I guess along the lines of, of the structure, I mean, the structural aspect's really interesting because they've all been really deformed post-emplacement. So that must be kind of confusing at times, I'm sure. But what are, what are the local structural controls on the KSM deposits? And are the structures arc parallel or arc transverse? Or are the deposits along structural intersections? Like what's the importance of the pre-existing structure? Yeah, super good questions. And this was, you know, obviously a lot of what my research focused on and mostly because it was very confusing. You know, when you walked across the Mitchell zone, the whole thing's foliated, folded. I mean, it looked like it was in a shear zone. And so it was really confusing to kind of unravel. But what we we just focused on the deformation and then kind of worked backwards. But in a nutshell, KSM you know, each, each deposit's associated with sort of one prevailing structural fabric, and that's defined by sheeted veins, you know, elongate alteration geometry, elongate plutonic geometry, as well as all of the deformation fabrics that are post-porphyry. So, you know, foliation, axial planes to folds. And it's a bit perplexing because, for example, you know, at Kerr, everything's northerly. Sulfurets is northeasterly. Mitchell and, and Snowfield are both easterly. And then Iron Cap is kind of north, northeasterly. And so you have these kind of geometries that seem to be at odds with each other. And our, our working model is that the trends are a reflection of what was initially the basin architecture. And that was active prior to porphyry formation. So that was during the deposition of the lowest Hazelton group rocks. So the overall kind of trend of the basin is, is defined by the lineation of the porphyry centers. So it's overall northerly, um, but you get other geometries in there as well. Most notably that easterly one that, that provides that kind of easterly fabric to Mitchell and Snowfield. Okay. So I guess zooming out a bit, in, in BC, we have porphyry deposits that span from copper only to copper moly to copper gold to then really gold-rich copper systems. So what processes, like what geodynamic, hydrothermal, or magmatic processes drive the metal type and the tenor? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty difficult question. <laughs> Very big picture, too. I mean, I, I think this, the subduction geometry is probably the most important factor for the metal metal types. What's going on with the subduction zone? Is it a first melting event for the arc or a second generation melting event? I don't know if anyone has the answer to that. Yeah, very hard question. <laughs> yeah, but it's super interesting. I mean, how many different systems there are in British Columbia and even right next to one another. You have an alkalic porphyry of one age and then, you know, 10, 15 kilometers away, a calc-alkalic porphyry of a completely different age. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I think if we knew all these answers, we might not research porphyries anymore. <laughs> yeah, there might be no more CIM volumes. Yeah. <laughs> So along the same lines of, of calc-alkalic versus alkalic, in BC, we've got the whole spectrum from calc-alkalic to high K calc-alkalic, like red Chris, and then we have alkalic systems. And so for a geologist in the field who maybe hasn't seen these different style porphyries, how would one figure out which of these environments they're in? Like, what would they look for? Right. Yeah. So, you know, technically you need to characterize the whole rock of the cause of intrusion. And what you tend to see is that you don't really know what the cause of intrusion is sometimes until quite far along in the game. And a lot of these systems aren't properly classified until much later on. I definitely see alkalic thrown around a lot in Stachinia because there's this idea that it makes for a better system. But truly, if you <laughs> if you want a good system, you would probably prefer to have a gold-rich calc-alkalic system because you would have more tonnage, likely, and you have the gold anyway. 
which a lot of them do. So if you don't have the luxury of, of knowing your system well enough to properly classify it, there are definitely some things you can look for. I think w- one of the biggest things is you'll find, you know, K feldspar sort of everywhere. Whereas in a calcalcalic system, you're likely only going to see that really in the core alteration assemblage. But in alcalic systems, you know, you can find it in the upper assemblages, in the lateral proximal assemblage, and also in the core. And so kind of to see that sort of in all the sulfide areas would be, you know, raising a red flag. At least in, in BC, I would say a lot of these Triassic Jurassic systems, the K Felsbar tends to be quite pink or maroon, which isn't as common in the calcocalic. You, you'd see a bit a bit more grays and, and that kind of thing. And if you're seeing, you know, in particular, any kind of voluminous or like reasonable density of quartz veins, you're very likely in, in a calcocalic. Right. And I guess what are the most important components to the exploration model and its interpretation to accurately drill target calc, alkaline and alkalic systems? So the porphyry exploration model is extremely robust. It's really, really well studied and it works perfectly, but it's, it's in applying the model where it can get tricky. And I think nowhere is that more true than in alkalic systems. And, you know, one of the pitfalls I think is that trying to always lump the mineral assemblage into these like so-called, you know, potassic, propylitic assemblages and trying to target like that. You know, with alkalic systems, it's very common to see a lot of confusion with what the potassic core is because you'll see a lot of K feldspar. And what I'd suggest is just coming up with a meaningful assemblage, ideally based on the sulfide abundance or sulfide ratios, and just come up with your core assemblage, you know, a proximal assemblage and a distal assemblage so that you can kind of make a bullseye geometry for any given system so it doesn't get too confused trying to, to force it into the, you know, potassic, propolytic, which, which doesn't always work, the mineralogy, there, you know, there's a lot of variation. Well, that's really good advice. I mean, just stepping back and creating, a, that's probably about good advice in any system, not just in porphyries. Definitely. And I think the most emphasis on, on the sulfide mineralogy and abundance, uh, you know, to build your alteration assemblages with an emphasis on those really can help highlight what you want to drill. Right. This has given me a lot to think about, at least that I'm sure the listeners of this episode would all agree. Are you going to be getting up north this season to look at some porphyries? Unfortunately, no porphyries this year. We've got a pretty exciting drill program planned at the Gold Range property with Kingfisher. Can't wait to get up and see some of that drill core as soon as as soon as they start turning. So orogenic gold this year. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Gail. I really appreciate you being on this episode and I'll let you get on with your day. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on the Discovery to Recovery podcast. I am Hallie Keevil, one of the hosts of this podcast series. Please join us next week with host Aisha Ahmed for an episode on how mineral chemistry can be used in exploration. You can access past episodes on segweb.org slash podcast. Be sure to follow the SEG on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels to get notified when the next episode comes out. A huge thank you to Mitch Mahalnik, Joanna Lipsky, and Gail Febo, who generously gave us their time and insight for this podcast episode. This episode was written and produced by myself, Hallie Keevil of Anglo-American, with editing support from Ann Thompson, Aisha Ahmed, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Compluence by Eastwinds from their album Compluence. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode and we'll catch you again next week.